Okay, well, good morning. Happy uh, late Thanksgiving to you guys. I know that there will probably be a lot of people uh, traveling slash recovering from all the tryptophan and all that stuff, the good turkey that we enjoyed, but I am thankful to be back with you all and to be here and to get a chance to talk about Scripture together today. So let's pray, and we will jump into part two of our overview of the book of Genesis. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the light and the life and the joy, the good news that we discover in it. I pray that as we discuss uh, the book of Genesis, this book of beginnings, that you would uh, give us deeper insight into how your word is structured and to its key themes so that we might uh, be helped to know you, to love you, to trust you more. Amen. All right, so Genesis part two. Uh, last week, we began with sort of the background, the authorship, the theme of Genesis, that it was written by Moses uh, during those wilderness travels. It's written to the people of Israel as they're coming out of slavery and heading towards the promised land. And Genesis is a historical narrative that has a theological emphasis. So it's stories, it's history, but it's not a history of everything that happened. Um, for example, we have multiple generations that are compressed into a few verses, and then multiple chapters that focus on the life of one man. Uh, do I need to change my, my resolution or output settings, Bryce? Not sure. Oh, well. It might just blink in and out today. That's okay. Uh, I can see my notes, so it's no big deal. Um, historical narrative with a theological emphasis. Uh, so again, the author, Moses, is focusing in on specific events, specific people, specific characters in this story because there's a theological theme that he is uh, developing and unpacking. Um, the book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. It focuses on origins, the beginning of the creation, the beginning of mankind and the human race, the origins of the nation Israel. Where did this people come from? And then it focuses on the beginning of God's redemptive plan. Uh, the promise of blessing and God's covenant with Abraham and what that would mean for the world, for the nations. So that's just a bit of review. There are two primary sections in the book of Genesis. Chapters 1 through 11 is what we would call the primeval history. This focuses on uh, the history of the whole world, the whole creation. It talks about creation and fall, the story of Noah, the destruction of the earth, and sort of a rebirth for the human race with a new kind of Adam in Noah, uh, but then it tells us about their fall, just like Adam's, and the pervasiveness of sin on the earth, which leads to Babel, the confusion of the languages, people being scattered in judgment. That's chapters 1 through 11, this primeval history that deals with the human race as a whole. And then the second section in the book of Genesis, what we'll be looking at today, is what you would call the patriarchal history. So we have the primeval history, chapters 1 through 11, and then the patriarchal history, chapters 12 through 50. And this deals with the patriarchs, with the life and the experiences of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons. So I'm going to be focusing in part two today on that patriarchal history, the second half of Genesis. So there's a theme that emerges in this second half of the book of Genesis. And it's a theme that started back in chapters 1 through 11. Remember, it's not two different books. There's one book, there's unity, even if it's divided into these two sections. Uh, there's a promise of blessing, and this blessing comes through the chosen offspring. That is the key theme that's emerging and developing and getting fleshed out and filled out throughout the book of Genesis, that blessing from God 
comes to God's people through the chosen offspring. So that's an essential theme. We find the beginnings of this theme in Genesis chapter 3, in the first hint of the gospel, what's often called the proto-euangelion. It's just a big word. It means first gospel. The first announcement, proto, of the euangelion, where we get our word um, evangelize or evangelism, the evangel, the good news. It's the first announcement of good news where God pronounces a curse on the serpent, and within this curse is good news, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So there's hope in that, right? There's hope that, that this invasive evil was going to be dealt with by God and through God's provision, and God would provide that hope, that victory, through the seed, through the offspring of the woman. So from that point on, from Genesis 3.15, Everything is focused on offspring, on the seed, and we see that theme developing. Uh, it's interesting, as, uh, as Adam and Eve bear a son, they name him Cain, and Eve declares, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, why would she say that? Well, she's holding on to this hope of offspring, that her seed was going to defeat the enemy and crush the head of the serpent. So there's this hope that maybe Cain is God's provision. But we know that that hope did not come to fruition, did it? Cain was not the one who would bring redemption. In fact, he killed his brother and proved to just um, be another source of evil in the world. After Cain is exiled and Abel is buried, Adam and Eve conceive and bear another son, and they call him Seth. And Eve declares again, I have been given another offspring from the Lord, another seed you see this hope for offspring and the blessing that will come through that offspring. When Noah is born, Noah's parents name him Noah, declaring this one will give us rest. They're experiencing the difficulties and the, and the pain and the labor that comes with the curse. It is toil. It is, it is difficult to bear children. It's difficult to uh, make a living and feed your family. Marriage is difficult. Everything's difficult. And when Noah's born, they cry out, this one perhaps will give us rest. So there's this hope in the offspring looking for God's provision through the chosen line, through the seed. And, and again, that's why we have all of these these genealogies in the book of Genesis. Remember last week we noted that there's 10 different uh, Toledoth sections. Toledoth is that Hebrew word for the generations. These are the generations of. Because the author of Genesis is focusing on offspring and on how the chosen line is being advanced and is moving forward. And it traces that all the way through. So that's sort of how this theme begins in chapters 1 through 11. And then we get to chapter 12. And this is where the narrative turns and the narrative, narrative focuses. You can open up to Genesis 12 uh, because we have the call of Abram. God calls Abram. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is perhaps some of the most important verses in the entire Bible. This is a hinge, a turning point. And if you don't understand these three verses, you won't understand what happens in the rest of Genesis, in the rest of the Pentateuch, in the rest of the Old Testament, and in the New Testament. So this is a launch pad for God's plan of redemption, and it's right here in Genesis chapter 12. Now think about this. Chapters 1 through 11 is the whole human race looking for offspring, and they keep experiencing the negative effects of the curse. Even in the generation, so-and-so lived this many years and he died, and he died, and he died, and the next one died, 
and the next one died. You have flooding, you have murder, you have judgment at the Tower of Babel. It's death and cursing, death and cursing, death and cursing. And then against the backdrop of all this cursing and all of this hope for offspring and for blessing, God steps in and does something. The human race has proven that left to themselves, they'll only ruin it. And so God says, I'm going to do something. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is very, very significant. God is announcing his plans to bring blessing for the whole world through the chosen line, through Abraham and his offspring. He promised uh, a number of things to Abram. Uh, This is his working through one man on behalf of the whole human race. So we almost have a new Adam once again. Adam was the representative of the human race and he failed. Noah was sort of a second chance, another Adam, a start, a fresh start for the human race. But we see Noah's failure right after they get off the ark. He becomes drunk, his sons dishonor him, and it's just a dysfunctional family. And so God says, I'm going to do something. I'm going to bless you, Abram. And through you, bless all the families of the earth. So there's a shift here from a global focus to an individual focus. And this explains why the rest of the book is about Abram and his family. There's an announcement of blessing here in contrast to the curse. And he announces here that he's going to make a covenant with the chosen offspring. This is like the first announcement of that covenant. The covenant has not been solidified or or fully defined yet, but God is announcing yet, announcing here what he's going to do for and through Abram. And it's the promise of God, this promise, that will secure and define the blessing that people were longing for. There's a definition for it here. He's going to do it in Abraham, through Abraham, on behalf of the whole earth. So let's look at this covenant with Abraham. It's announced here in Genesis chapter 12. God announces what he will do. He promises him offspring, making him a great nation. He promises him, secondly, land, that he's going to give him a place. Adam and Eve had been driven out of the garden. The people at Babel had been driven away. But God is promising to give Abram and his descendants a place where they can enjoy his blessing. And he promises him this relational blessing. Uh, There's both a personal aspect to this blessing, that Abraham's going to be blessed, but there's also a universal aspect to the blessing promised in Genesis 12. It's a blessing through Abraham, or Abram here, for all the families of the earth. This covenant with Abram that's announced, that's, uh, that's declared here in chapter 12, is going to be formalized in Genesis chapter 15. We don't have time to walk through that whole passage Uh, But there, the covenant is ratified, or to use another word, it's inaugurated. It is formalized, and we know what happens in Genesis chapter 15, uh, where where Abram um, sacrifices all these animals, divides them in half, lines them up, and then a deep sleep falls upon him, a sense of dread and darkness as God himself, uh, with this theophany, this flaming torch, 
with all this smoke, it's a manifestation of God's glory. God himself passes through the two divi- uh, the lines of divided animals. And this is what, um, what we would call a suzerain treaty format. That's a big word we don't often use, but it's basically an arrangement. It's a covenantal arrangement between two parties. Now, some covenants, some formal arrangements would be between equal parties, two people on equal footing. A suzerain treaty is different. It's between two unequal parties, a ruler or a sovereign and his vassal or his subject. And that's what's going on here. God needs nothing from Abraham. He's not asking for anything from him. He's promising to do something for him. And in response, Abram is to be loyal to God. So it's a treaty, a a covenant between two unequal parties. And that's what's going on here. And this treaty, this covenant is unconditional or what you might call unilateral. All the obligations fall on God. He doesn't promise to do things if. He just promises to do things. This is an unconditional covenant. And this covenant includes in Genesis chapter 15 uh, a bit of a prophecy of the future. He tells them that his descendants will be slaves in Egypt for uh, 400 years. And then he promises that they're going to come back to the land but not yet, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see a hint here of the conquest, that God is going to bring these people out and use them to judge the wicked Canaanites. So all of this is happening as the covenant is formalized in Genesis chapter 15. So the Abrahamic covenant is really the feature. It's this promise of blessing through the chosen line. We see it announced in Genesis 12. It's formalized in Genesis 15. And then the sign of this covenant is given in Genesis 17. We see a repetition of all these promises in, in, all these, in these different instances. Land, blessing, protection, provision, uh, and offspring. The promise of children and a big family and eventually a great nation. And in Genesis 17, there's a sign given. Just like I wear a wedding ring as the symbol of my marriage covenant, uh, Abram and his family, Abraham, were given the sign of circumcision as the symbol of this covenant they had with God. And what we find happens through the story of Abraham, and this is important because it's a pattern, is that because of God's covenant, we see barrenness overcome and offspring provided. That's what moves the story forward. Sarah isn't able to conceive and have children, but God supernaturally in her old age gives her a child. Because of the covenant promise, because of God's plan to bless all the families of the earth through this man and his family, he supernaturally provides a child. So that's the covenant with Abraham. And it's all grace, isn't it? It's God giving undeserved blessing to Abraham and therefore extending his grace to us. And we see throughout the course of the narrative that Abraham responds in faith. Not perfectly. There's time where he compromises. There's time where he doubts or he's uncertain or he tries to take things into his own hands and thinks maybe I can get offspring with my wife's servant. And he has a son called Ishmael. So it's not perfect faith, but it is genuine faith. And Genesis tells us that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So this covenant is the developing theme. It's blessing for God's people through the chosen line, through the offspring that God promised. And it starts all the way back in Genesis 3, but now we see it really developing in the life of Abraham. This covenant with Abraham it then carries beyond Abraham to the next generation. We see this covenant renewed with Isaac. The chosen line continues through Isaac. 
He's the child of promise, the supernatural gift of God that causes them to laugh because they're old people and they have a baby, and Isaac means laughter. Uh, So the chosen line continues through Isaac, not Ishmael. Uh, God's promise, God's covenant will not be with this offspring that was attained through their human efforts. It will be through God's gracious supernatural provision. So the chosen line continues through Isaac, not Ishmael. Uh, We see the divine provision of a wife for Isaac. God gives him a wife. Why does he need a wife? Well, it's not because he's lonely. It's not because marriage is a blessing. It's because they need offspring. Offspring is essential for God's plan to continue. So God supernaturally provides a wife. We have that amazing story of Abraham's servant going and finding this wife for Isaac. And then in Genesis 26, the covenant is renewed with Isaac. The same promises that God made with Abraham, he renews, he repeats, he reemphasizes those with Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. So the covenant promise, the covenant plan, it didn't die off when Abraham died. It continues with Isaac and through Isaac. In the life of Isaac, just like with Abraham, we see this relationship, this covenantal relationship with God. We see divine protection. Just like God protected Abraham and his wife Sarai when they were in Egypt, protected uh, Sarah or Sarai from being taken by Pharaoh, we see a very similar story uh, with uh, another pa- pagan king where God protects Re- Rebekah from being taken and the offspring being compromised or being lost. So we see similar patterns in the life of Isaac because the same covenant is at work. The same plan is being carried out by God. And just like with Abraham, we see barrenness overcome in the life of Isaac and offspring provided. It says that Rebekah was barren, she was childless, and Isaac prayed for her and God opened her womb, gave her twins, Jacob and Esau. That moves us to the next generation. So the covenant is made with Abraham. It's renewed with Isaac. And then we see this covenant renewed again, continued with Jacob. The chosen line continues through him. There's twin sons, Jacob and Esau, Esau, but Jacob is the child of promise. Even though he's the younger, he will be the one through whom God continues this covenant plan. He's the recipient of the promise, not Esau. The covenant is renewed with Jacob at a place called Bethel in Genesis chapter 28. You guys are probably familiar with the story. As he's on the run from his hometown, from his, his, his home, uh, he goes to sleep in the desert. He's using a rock for a pillow. He sees a vision of this great stairway. This, it's translated ladder, but it's probably more like a stairway, like a temple, temple steps, really, going up into the heavens. And he sees the glory of God. He sees angels ascending and descending. And God speaks to Jacob, this runaway, this renegade, this guy who does have some character issues, and God repeats the same covenant promises with Jacob, that just like he was with Abraham and Isaac, he would be with Jacob. He's going to give him offspring, give him the land, and bless him. It's the same promises renewed in Genesis 28. And that's why Jacob names the place Bethel, the house of God, because he encountered the glory of God and received those promises there. Just like with Abraham and just like with Isaac, Jacob also receives divine protection. We see that God protects him from Esau, his murderous brother, who's angry because he got swindled by his brother. He protects him from Laban, who tries to cheat him and swindle him. We see that God's plan to bless this man, Jacob, even though he doesn't deserve it. God is going to accomplish that plan no matter what the people around him are trying to do. 
And just like in the story of Abraham and Isaac, once again we see barrenness overcome and offspring provided. Jacob has two wives and also has children with their two servants, which is a a negative thing, a compromise. But even in those stories, we see this theme of barrenness, not being able to have children, desperately desiring children, God supernaturally opening their wombs, providing children. Why is having babies such a big deal in the book of Genesis? Again, it's not just because childlessness is a difficulty. It is. And there are many who experience that difficulty. But remember, this is theological, that without offspring, God's promise of redemption comes to a halt. So again, the, f- the focus here is on the blessing of salvation provided through the chosen offspring. That's the theme here in Genesis. And we see it with each and every generation, with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. In the life of Jacob, we see divine provision um, as well. Uh, and divine protection. Much of Jacob's story actually focuses on his son Joseph and the life of Joseph. And we see that God turns the betrayal of Joseph into rescue for the whole family. How can they be blessed if they starve to death in the land of Canaan? How can they become a great nation if they die out when there's only a few dozen of them in existence? Again, God's working in the life of Joseph isn't even about Joseph. It's about the chosen offspring, the family. It's about God's covenant promises and the salvation for the world that comes through them. We see the chosen seed continues uh, through the line of Jacob, through his sons. There's 12 sons that become 12 tribes. And we see this promise of offspring continues after them. Flip over to Genesis chapter 50. Again, this is one of those passages. It's another um, kind of longer text that you might Actually, Genesis 49, uh, Genesis 49, one of those texts you might be tempted to sort of read through quickly. It's a blessing that Jacob pronounces on his 12 sons. So there's blessing and offspring. That's the theme of the book of Genesis. And it's right here in this extended section in Genesis 49, before uh, Jacob dies, he gathers his sons, he gathers them together, and there's this prophetic blessing that he pronounces upon all his sons. But look in verse um, 10. In verse 10, he pronounces a blessing on one of his sons, not the oldest, not even the second oldest. It's on Judah. And even though Judah, in the book of Genesis, if you study his story, he has major character issues. There is major sin in his life, yet we see God's grace continuing through him. It says the scepter, that's an imagery of kingship and rulership, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Upon the son Judah is pronounced this blessing, a prophetic blessing, that through his descendants there will be kingship, great prosperity, and supremacy over all the peoples of the earth. Who does that sound like? This offspring, the chosen seed, is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. The promises of blessing and offspring, the promises here of kingship and and worldwide prosperity, and the submission of the nations to the king of Israel, all of this ultimately leads us to Jesus Christ. He is the seed. 
He is the offspring. The book of Galatians makes that clear, that all of this ultimately is fulfilled in Christ. So again, we don't understand the identity and the mission of Jesus until we understand the theme of Genesis, this foundational story that shapes and guides all of history towards its appointed end, which is the glorious reign of Christ and his provision of blessing, salvation for all the families of the earth. In the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul will write that in Christ, this promise is fulfilled and that by faith, we share in the blessing promised to Abraham. This is a blessing for us. And we come to share in these things through faith in Christ. So this theme of the covenant and the blessing that comes through the offspring, that is the primary theme here in the book of Genesis. And what's amazing, what we see throughout the whole thing is that sovereign grace is really what sustains this covenant. You read about Abraham, you read about Isaac, you read about Jacob and Joseph, you can't help but see how sovereign grace sustains this covenant promise and fulfills this covenant purpose. Covenant grace overcomes unbelief. Abraham has doubts. Isaac compromises. Jacob, at times, does not walk by faith, yet covenant grace overcomes their unbelief. God promised he would do this. It's an unconditional promise, and he will accomplish it. And that's encouraging to us because it shows us that our salvation doesn't rest on the faithfulness and the performance of sinful men. Our salvation, our blessing comes through the faithfulness of our perfect God, whose sovereign grace overcomes unbelief. We see that it's covenant grace that overcomes barrenness, childlessness in each generation. We find that physical limitations and the things that we can't control, well, that's no problem for God. He is able to accomplish his purposes for redemption and salvation, no matter what the circumstances are. We see that covenant grace overcomes human failure. In the situation with Joseph and his brothers, God bends their sinful actions towards his appointed ends. This is the Old Testament version of of Romans chapter 8, that God works all things together for good, even the wicked sinful actions and intentions of Joseph's brothers. And he's able to bring bring out of that something that accomplishes his redemptive purposes. We find that it's covenant grace, this sovereign grace that preserves the chosen line and through it God's redemptive plans for the nations. So the book of Genesis to me is intriguing, it is exciting, it is encouraging, it strengthens my faith because we learn so much about what God is doing in the world and we understand what it is that God is doing through Jesus, not just for the nation Israel, not just for this one family, but for all the families, all the nations. And it helps us to see the glory of God, his grace, his purposes, his promises. And it explains for us why the rest of the Old Testament goes the way it does. Why is it that God would bring this complaining, grumbling, unbelieving nation out of slavery, feed them in the wilderness, help them defeat all the Canaanites, give them this land, and then bring them back every time they sin? Why would he do that for them? Well, it's because of this promise of blessing, an unconditional promise. It's because they are, within this nation Israel, within the tribe of Judah is this chosen line, and the Christ must come for God's purposes of redemption to be accomplished. This explains the whole Old Testament, why God puts up with these people, why he cares about this little nation in this little corner of a big world. It explains a lot, and it explains for us 
uh, why this chosen offspring, this line, is so important in the New Testament. Why do we have a genealogy for Joseph? Why is it that Jesus is shown over and over again to be the son of David from the tribe of Judah, who is a descendant of Abraham? Well, it's because in Jesus, this, these purposes and these promises are being carried out. So I, I hope you see how the book of Genesis really fits into the story of the whole Bible, the story of the Old Testament. Um, and I hope you will be encouraged and helped to go read it and to discover for yourself uh, the beauty of this covenant promise. This is something that as you read through the prophets, um, you'll see features of this covenant come up time and time again. Um, When he talks about the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's shorthand code for the covenant with Abraham, this arrangement between God and his people. Um, When you see these promises of restoration, even promises like the Davidic covenant, promises like the new covenant, you see that it all grows out of this foundational arrangement between God and the chosen line. So, so this is like a, an interpretive key that unlocks so much of the Old Testament. And I think it will help you as you read to remember how the story started, to remember the prequel movie, so to speak, um, that, that establishes who the characters are and establishes what the, the, the protagonist and the enemy, who they are, and it establishes the, the narrative arc of the whole story. It's a wonderful book. We see human failure over and over and over again at every level. No one is without blame. No one is perfect in this book. Even the good guys have problems. But we see a faithful God who always keeps his covenant, whose sovereign grace orchestrates history to bring about his intended ends. That's something that not only allowed Abraham to believe, he believed God, and it it was counted to him as righteousness. Those truths that are found in these stories is something that helps us to believe, strengthens our faith. So I love the book of Genesis. Um, if you're interested in learning more, a few years ago, um, we preached through the book of Genesis. So you can go back and listen to some of those old sermons if you want to dig in a little bit deeper. Uh, but next week, we're going to turn the page. The book of Genesis ends this way in Genesis chapter 50. Verse, uh, let's look at verse 22. It's the death of Joseph. We'll just read the last little book of Genesis, the last little part of the book of Genesis, because this is sort of the the cliffhanger, the to be continued that sets us up for Exodus. It says, Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. Ephraim was his son. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. On his deathbed, Joseph is holding on to this Abrahamic covenant. He says, I know we're here in Egypt, but we won't always be. I know God's going to bring us back. Verse 25, here's Joseph's final act of faith. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. He said, listen, you're going to bury me here, but take me with you because we belong in the land and this is not our home. Verse 26, so Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And in my Bible, I have Egypt underlined and three little dots right after that. The chosen people are becoming, they're not yet, but they're becoming a great nation. 
but they're not yet in the land. So God's covenant promises, his purposes, there's more that needs to happen. And that's where the book of Exodus picks up the story on the next page. So come back next week, and uh, we're going to take two weeks to go through Exodus because it also is a very big book and has two very pronounced sections. So Scott Huffman's going to walk us through that. Trust you'll come back next week as we continue our study. Uh, We ended a little bit early today, so if you have questions about Genesis or the covenant, uh, come down to the front. We can hang out and talk about it for a few minutes, and we'll enjoy some fellowship before worship at 1030. You're dismissed.